All right, so chapter 14 of Acts. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews, who accused of this, stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to ill-treat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Laconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding countryside, where they continued to preach the gospel. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in Laconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas, they called Zeus. And Paul, they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought balls and wreaths to the city gates, because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they have difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered round him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left the Derbe. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom he had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, and then when they had reached the word in <clears throat> and then when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. From Atalia they went back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God, the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, 
and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So let's just pray before we look at chapter 14. Heavenly Father, we do pray now that through your Holy Spirit, you will open our hearts and minds so that we hear what you have to say to us in this passage. And as we hear your word, might we be changed, might your word change us, so that we might continue to live for your honour and glory. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Right. It was a long time ago since I did science at school, but I still can remember Newton, not Newton, Newton's third law of motion. Um, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Um, I think I can even remember one or two of the formula for the laws of motion and all those graphs with speed and acceleration and whatever it was. It, it was a long time ago anyway. But you, that is, you know, the third law of motion, that every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. And I guess it's particularly popular in the 70s when I'm sure many of you hadn't even been born. There were Newton's cradles when you had that framework and those set about eight ball bearings put on, hung on threads and you uh, let lift one and let it go, and then the opposite one and the other side moves, and then you do two, and then two, you know, are knocked out the other side, and so forth, you know, so for every, so action, there's equal and opposite um, reaction. And, you know, in Acts, we, right from the beginning, we've seen how the gospel has gone out from Jerusalem, all of Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and that is where we are now gospel is still going out, the gospel is being preached. And while the gospel advances, so does the reaction against it. But, and this is where Newton's law of motion doesn't apply to the gospel, although there will be a reaction when Christ is proclaimed, the reaction will never be equal to the gospel. The gospel will always be opposed, but the gospel's spiritual power is supreme and it's unstoppable. So last time we looked at Acts, and we were in chapter 13, Peter and Barnabas set out from Antioch. It gets a little bit confusing because you've got Antioch and Pisidian Antioch. Um, But from Antioch, which was in modern-day Syria... And they set out on their first missionary journey to the Mediterranean area. Um, And in this chapter, we pick up where we left off in chapter 13. Um, And they move into what is now modern-day Turkey, Galatia, part of the Imperial Roman Empire. And so the first thing we're going to look at is the first first, uh, verse up to verse 21 the unstoppable gospel of the risen, ascended Christ. So, say, Paul and Barnabas have left Pisidian Antioch and travelled to Iconium. Iconium. And we see the same pattern of ministries was established in chapter 13, as Luke points out in chapter 13. 
Take a look at verse 1 of chapter 14 and we'll see the same pattern that we saw in chapter 13. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into a Jewish synagogue. There they spoke effectively, but a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But then, almost inevitably, opposition comes in verse 2 from the Jews who refuse to believe. And just as in chapter 13, in the face of such opposition, what is Paul and Barnabas' reaction? Have a look at verse 3. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed their message of grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. So Paul and Barnabas, they don't cut and run when they come across opposition. It says there, they stayed a considerable length of time. They confirmed the message of signs and wonders. In this part of this stage of salvation history, we've seen how Peter, when he spoke, was able to perform signs and wonders, miracles. Similarly for Paul as well. So in the face of this hostility face of opposition, they don't run, they stay there. And we see, we've already been told um, by Luke in this account, that they have won a number of people for Christ, and yet there are the Jews who oppose them. Some reject, some accept the gospel. Remaining Paul and Barnes there to support, encourage those who have believed in the risen Christ. And, you know, that's important, isn't it? We need, you know, when people turn in repentance and faith, put their trust in the Lord, to be just left on their own. It's going to be hard to sustain a faith without encouragement, without other Christians. It's going to be difficult it's going to be hard to be on your own. And that's what the product of Barnabas and Paul is here. They stay with them. They stay a long time. They're committed to the gospel message. They're committed to proclaiming Christ crucified, resurrected and ascended. And when do they leave? Have a look at verse 5. They learn the plot to mistreat and stone them. And again, within that, God is at work, surely. As we know, God is sovereign. As the gospel is proclaimed. So they go when the timing is right, when God's timing is right. As you see in verse 5, they learn of the plot and they move on. Yet they have established a church there in Iconium. Believers, and we'll see later on, they will come back. But even when they leave Iconium and go to Lustra, what's their priority? Look at verse 7. Where they continue to preach the gospel. So it's new location, same priority to preach the gospel, to tell the people of the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended. Unlike 
in Iconium, Paul and Barnabas do not visit the synagogue first, which has been this pattern which we've seen in chapter 13 and also when they, the previous uh, Iconium, where they just come from. And it would appear there's no synagogue. So this is almost predominantly, if not exclusively, a Gentile settlement, non-Jewish, and without any synagogue, without any of that sort of cultural imprint or knowledge, even if they're not believers of a population of the one true God, the the God that the Jews um, worship in the synagogue. The first event, Luke informs, as Luke writes um, this account, informs us of a miraculous healing um, of a man. He's been lame from birth. We see that in verse eight. And do you know? Do you? Uh, I'm sure you can remember back chapter three. I know it was probably before Christmas, so that'd be 2021. But in chapter three, we have Peter. After Pentecost in chapter 3, he heals, again, a man lame from birth, sitting outside the temple at the gate, beautiful. I'm sure Luke is drawing attention, this similarity, so that we are aware, we know that Paul's apostleship is of the same order as Peter's. Just as Jesus works through Peter, so too Paul. Peter is primarily the apostle to the Jews, Paul to the Gentiles. But it is Christ who's working through both of them. These two men, Peter, Paul, who had seen the risen Christ, and now through the power of the Holy Spirit, are proclaiming the risen Lord. Response to the healing from the crowd. Look at verses 11 and 12. They deify Barnabas and Paul. They call Barnabas Zeus and Paul Mercury. Well, it isn't Mercury, it's Hermes. Mercury is the Roman um, name for Hermes. And because we mentioned there was no synagogue, so it would seem that this was a predominantly um, non-Jewish, Gentile area. So possibly we could understand, because they had no real um, knowledge or experience of Jews in any large numbers, if any, and their worship of Yahweh, the one true God, when they see something like this take place, you know, this superstitious, um, non-Jewish population. They come from a, an agrarian um, background. You know, they live and work on the land. They've not been steeped in the Old, Test- Old Testament. Perhaps their response isn't quite as strange as we might um, imagine. And again, we see, although we saw the similarity between Peter and Paul in the healing of the lame man, do you notice a contrast? When Peter healed the lame man outside the temple at the Gate Beautiful, there was no question that the priests were going to 
do anything that such as occurs here in Lystra. These are people, the priests, steeped in the Old Testament. They opposed Peter, but clearly they're not going to... Uh, these um, men um, steeped in the Old Testament monotheism, they're not going to do anything like this. Whereas here, Paul, different audience, different reaction. But at this... This reaction, as strange as it might appear to our, to our ears, sounds strange. Gives Paul an opportunity, doesn't it, to respond with a clear message regarding the living and true God. The God who's been speaking to them through creation. Just look at 15 to 17. I'll read it. Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. <coughs> so, you know, Paul stresses here the humanness of the message, of the messengers, Paul and Barnabas, but the message is from the living God. And the problem is, the people listening to him at Lystra have confused the messenger and the message, haven't they? But Paul is absolutely clear. They are not gods, but the one they're talking about the creator God, the one who's created heaven and earth, who's shown kindness by giving rain and crops, food and joy. That's the one true God. And Paul is, I mean, clearly, if he'd been in the uh, synagogue with an audience who are well-versed in the Old Testament, knew all that, Yahweh, um, prophets, then he, wouldn't, then, then he would have started at that point. But here he goes back even further to talking about the God of creation. The one who has created all things. And Paul says, turn from worthless things to serve the true and living God. Once again, some believe and others oppose the gospel. In verse 22, we'll, we'll look at it a little uh, later, on Barnabas and Paul's journey back to Antioch, the, to the church which commissioned them on this first missionary journey, they return to the disciples in Lystra. So clearly some had turned in repentance and faith and accepted Christ. So even though the initial response, Paul is tearing his uh, clothing and, and Barnabas too. But it enables them to go, right, to go even further back with their gospel message. They have to start where the people can understand or begin to understand. Despite being almost stoned to death, as we see in verse 20, the gospel is advancing. So equal and opposite reaction, not in this case. The gospel still keeps on going forward. Despite the opposition, there will be opposition, but it isn't equal. God's gospel 
will advance. It's unstoppable. So God's sovereign salvation, uh, God is sovereign in salvation. We saw that in um, chapter 13, verse 48. Just scan across um, to verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord. And all were appointed for eternal life lived. So God is sovereign. Yet, we know from the Great Commission, we are given that commission to tell people the gospel, to make disciples of all nations. And it is God's gospel. The gospel is not for us to change. It's not to add to or take away. It's not to make it, to make it more acceptable for our audience, it is God's. But the means of communicating it, the mode, the way we present the gospel, there's flexibility, isn't it? We've seen here, we've seen Paul, first of all, going to the Jews, to the synagogue. Here, no sort of um, background um, to a population where there is no synagogue, very little, if any, um, knowledge of the God of Israel. His approach is different, but it's the same gospel. And the gospel, when we present it, is not about being more polished or presenting it in a better way or a better style or you know, brushing up and making it um, seem, you know, um, clearer, although I'm sure that's good. Even in our faltering and hesitant, hesitating attempts, God is sovereign, as we've seen. But there's that cross-cultural flexibility in how we present the gospel. You know, and we look at um, in our society now, and we have. We might need to go all the way back, as he, as Paul is doing here, talking about. Creator God. It's a bit like in um, Romans chapter 1, it says none of us are without excuse. Um, we know there is a God, you know, a Creator God. None of us are without excuse. And this is, you know, how Paul is going back here. So there is that flexibility. But in all of this, whatever the means of communica- communicating the gospel, the gospel, it's God's gospel, it's a power to save all who believe and it is about Jesus the one who has been crucified who has risen and is now ascended and will return again and you know just thinking about it, I was just thinking of a London City Mission they do a lot of work in London you can imagine um a diverse population, kind of all sorts of backgrounds, different economic sort of uh, um, le- um, economic background, um, sorry, economic um, disposable income, um, different ethnic backgrounds, all sorts of um, difference in population. And it's interesting their approaches. Um, Again, you see this flexibility in presenting the gospel. But, again, the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ doesn't change. 
homeward bound. We're looking at verses 21 to 28. So this first missionary journey gets as far as Derbe, where we, where we see in verse 21, a large number of people are led to faith in Christ. And then Paul and Barnabas retrace their steps back to Antioch, where they were commissioned, first commissioned to go out on this missionary journey. But this is no sprint back home. I think as we look at it uh, here, as Luke um, narrates these events, he's probably compressed it, because it isn't a sprint back to Antioch. As we see, they visit each of the churches, each of these God's new communities which have been established um, as they've worked their way through this, uh, through the Mediterranean and through Galatia. And Paul and Barnabas, as they visit these um, communities of new believers, God's new communities, they strengthen and encourage them. Again, we, sit, we saw, didn't we, back in Iconium, where they stayed a long time to encourage and strengthen the new believers. And now as they retrace, retrace the steps back to Antioch, that's exactly what they're doing again. And again, that's what, when we think about it, for those who have recently turned in repentance and faith and put their trust in Christ... That's going to be so important, isn't it, to have that encouragement, to be strengthened, to be taught. And that's what Paul and Barnabas, again, we see that commitment. We see the love and the care they have for those new Christians. But Paul's a realist as well, isn't he? He knows that these new churches, they're going to face struggles, difficulties. You know, these settlements in the Roman Empire, you know, all around them will be forces opposed to them. So verse 22, this is what Paul says. Have a look at verse 22. Encouraging them to remain true to faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they say. So they say, Paul is realistic. So what does he do? He provides them, he appoints elders to the church. And Paul is the ideal person to bring this message of hardship and suffering, knowing that he's going to appoint leaders to the church. But Paul, as we've seen, he's been left for dead, um, stoned. So he knows all about hardship. He knows all about trouble. And if we follow Christ, um, it's clear that we might well face hardship and persecution. In fact, we will face hardship and persecution. I mean, in John 15, it says, Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So to say, Paul being a realist, being very realistic, about these new churches and the pressures and difficulties they're going to face, he appoints leaders, elders of the church, for the churches, for these new churches. Have a look at verse 23.
Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord, in whom they put their trust. These leaders will shepherd and care for these new believers, and when the trials or difficulties come, which surely they will do, they will have a shepherd. They, they will be take care of them. They will teach them and they will prepare them for the realities of what they're going to face. And so, as, as Paul and Barnabas retrace their steps, visiting all of these new um, churches, this collection of believers, they finally make their way back to Antioch. And it's interesting, they don't draw attention to what they have done, rather it's what God has done through them. Look at verse 27. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And telling this, the church at Antioch, the commissioning church, of what God has been doing through Barnabas and through Paul, it enables the church to be encouraged to pray and see how the gospel, the unstoppable gospel, is advancing. And as we, as I say, hardship, persecution, say in John 15 it says, we will face that. And perhaps the physical beatings, stonings that Paul had endured, those hardships, might, be, might seem very far away and unlikely. And I have a feeling for us here, in this country at the time being, and even in the future, I, I, I don't see it as likely. But, and we know very well, around the world, brothers and sisters in Christ face physical danger, they face economic disadvantage because of their faith, all sorts of things. The UN, recent United Nations, had a report recently which stated Christians are the most persecuted faith group on the globe. You wouldn't know that from the media, though, would you? You think of Africa, where Christianity is um, growing hugely. In Nigeria, uh, Boko Haram has been carrying, waging a sort of a campaign against Christians in the north of Nigeria for many years. Again, um, there's a camp, you know, the Islamist, Islamist groups. Um, not just Christians, but others um, are being persecuted, but certainly Christians there as well. So Christians do face that physical um, hardship, persecution, be it economic, be it physical. But for us in the West, possibly we're more likely, and I think increasingly, to receive how could I put it, a psychological stoning, if you like, a metaphorical thing, which isn't physical, isn't um, physical hurt or danger, but as increasingly our Western culture not just rejects Bible-believing Christianity, but sees it as dangerous, um, I think, you know, we are going to find it harder and harder. I mean, myself, I'm 
60 odd, I've got another 20 years, 25 years, who knows, and I can probably sort of hunker down and I'm not at work or anything like that, and probably something, but I think for people, for um, Christians in the workplace, um, it's probably not going to be quite so easy. As I say, you know, even 20 years ago or so, even though many people now have been Christians, they saw Christianity as something good, um, even if they didn't um, believe it. And it's interesting to see how quickly and how fast that has changed. Um, I was someone, a young Christian, moving into a flat, and we were just talking about it, and someone said, oh, you realise the person is non-binary. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what impact that will have as they share a house with that um, individual. Um, obviously, next week we're looking at transgender issues. Again, that's a huge challenge for Christians, and, you know, we hear that term, don't we? We're on the wrong side of history. I've just been reading a book called Being the Bad Guys um, by an Australian. I've dipped in and out of it. But it is a really helpful book because I think the problem is for us as Christians in the West, we can react in various ways. We can, I just guess, try and blend in. And in so doing, you lose the gospel. And clearly that isn't an option for those who believe in Christ. So compromise isn't um, the answer we can get defensive, we can get angry, we can try and fight the culture wars. Not sure how helpful that's going to be. I mean, we see, even in the corporate world, there's something called ESG, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's meant environment, social and governance. And within the social, it's all about um, equality and diversity and that sort of Agenda and um, again, that's going to be challenges for Christians. I mean, what what do you do if you know your school is going to? All, it, I think it's Pride Month, isn't it? This month it must be because the MOD's website's got rainbows on it. What do you do if your school says you're going? We're going to organise a Pride event, or in the workplace, you know, um, the person who is responsible for um, quality and diversity is going to put on an event um, to celebrate Pride Week or what have you. And, and the writer of the book I was referring to, I think it, it, he's quite helpfully, as he says, I don't think trying to withdraw and, you know, into sort of behind our hedges of righteousness as one person's put on holy huddles is going to really help us. Just assimilating being and, you know, keeping our heads down, well, that, what would our witness be for Christ? And equally, that sort of defensiveness, that anger, trying to, you know, fight the culture wars, I think that's going to be helpful. And what he said was, looking at someone like Daniel, it was, you know, he says being faithful, being faultless, and being fearless. And I think what he means is, we're, as we live in this society, where, in the West particularly, where... Um, Christianity is seen far from a force of good, but is actually seen as something negative, bad. Um, we, we need to remain faithful, 
but all faultless, not in the sense we, we don't sin, but our approach to our fellow uh, believers, our church, and also in the workplace, how we are in the workplace, with all of those around us, those people who have a completely different worldview, different view on sexuality, or whatever it might be, we still, as we call to, to love our neighbour as ourselves, and fearless, in the sense, just as Daniel was, with all the pressures he placed to, you know, worship um, Nebuchadnezzar the king, um, and the pressures which were brought to bear on him. So we can be fearless in the fact that we know we are on the right side of history because in Christ, when he came, the kingdom came. He has, his crucifixion, he's risen, and now he's ascended, and he will return to bring about that new creation, that new heaven and earth. And we await that, so we know, and we can look forward to and in the meantime, we don't fear. We know that God is in control. He is sovereign. We aren't arrogant. We aren't um, trampless, anything like that. We are part of society. We love those around us, even those with very different views. So, and we uh, present, I say faultless, not we don't sin, but our attitude is one which does not bring us um, into reproach in any way to those around us. And we're faithful. We keep on trusting in the one true God. So as we see Paul and Barnabas going back to Antioch to tell the Commission Church all that God has done through them, Paul has gone back to those churches. He's realistic. He knows they're going to be in their place in Galatia, that part of the Roman Empire. They will come under pressure. They will come under pressure to compromise. They will come under pressure to renounce their faith. They will probably face physical hardship, economic hardship, whatever it might be. But Paul, going back, encouraging, strengthening them, and providing with leaders knows that's what's going to happen. And as we look ahead into Acts in chapter 20, even he talks about wolves and sheep's clothing. You know, even some of the leaders themselves will um, turn out not to be true and faithful. Yet, all who have turned to Christ can trust in him and, and that he will return to bring in that new age, that new kingdom, that new heaven and earth. So why don't we pray? On arriving there, they gathered church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he'd opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Heavenly Father, as we read this account of Barnabas and Paul, how they preach your gospel and how we see the reaction against it, we know that whatever the reaction, whatever the force against it, your gospel will prevail, it will advance, it is unstoppable. And we just give you thanks and praise. And we pray that we too continue to be faithful, to be faultless in the eyes of those around us in our attitudes to them. 
and fearless, knowing that you are sovereign and in control. And we pray this in your Son's name. Amen.